Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Um, today's scripture comes from the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Listen closely for what God is saying to us today. If only, if only he would give me some of his kisses. Oh, your loving is sweeter than wine. Your fragrance is sweet. Your very name is perfume. That's why the young women love you. Take me along with you. Let's run. My king has brought me into his chamber saying, let's exalt and rejoice in you. Let's savor your loving more than wine. No wonder they all love you. Dark am I and lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, like the black tents of the Kedar nomads, like the curtains of Solomon's palace. Don't stare at me because I am darkened by the sun's gaze. My own brothers were angry with me. They made me a caretaker of the vineyards, but I couldn't care for my own vineyard. Tell me, you whom I love with all my heart, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you rest them at noon so I don't wander around with flocks of your companions? May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of these words. Good morning again, Urban Village Church. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as um, the pastor here, ministering alongside many others who you have already seen up front, and even more that you do not really see up front very frequently, but help us do what we do so well. Thank you to Alonzo for... um, your message to share with us today and reminding us that relationships um, are the fabric of what connect us to one another. Um, And certainly today is is one of the, we'll be talking a little bit about that um, uh, in our our passage. But, you know, why don't we begin um, uh, our time of hearing uh, what God has to say to us with a song. It was a song that we were... um, supposed to sing this morning, um, but I think for a variety of reasons we didn't, but I think it will be a good way for us to center our hearts and our minds together. Um, I think most of you will probably know it, but the, uh, there are the words, um, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. us pray. God, prepare us indeed to be sanctuaries of your grace, of your holiness, of your joy, and of the fullness of who we are, that by seeing the way that we live, others might also be inspired to do the same. Speak through me, speak through Tim, speak um, into our hearts and our minds um, the things that you have to say to us today, that we might leave this place more prepared to be your sanctuary and reminded of just what a gift it is. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
So a few weeks ago, um, I came across an article, no, sorry, a few years ago, I came across an article about um, a strip club in San Francisco that was closing called The Lusty Lady. Has anyone ever heard of The Lusty Lady? Okay. Um, as far as strip clubs go, The Lusty Lady seemed like it was a, a pretty cool one, actually. Um, usually, when I think of strip clubs, which is not really ever, actually... Um, <laughs> I have this idea or this image um, in my mind that they're kind of sad places, uh, places where owners exploit women, paying them inadequately and maybe putting women in potentially dangerous situations. Um, but the thing about the lusty lady that was really interesting to me was that it unionized in 1997. And then in 2003, the dancers bought it out and it became a co-op. One woman who had been a dancer there wrote an essay about her experiences in the publication The Atlantic, and she mentioned how the customers weren't allowed to tell women how to perform um, or say whatever they wanted, and she said, if this seems like an insignificant detail, it is anything but, that the terms of interaction were non-negotiable, underscored for many dancers a valuable aspect of sexual self-awareness. This is mine. In private or shown for hire, Clothed or bare, it is mine. After a few weeks at the Lusty, when I would walk down the street, I felt less threatened by men shouting things at me. My posture changed. If it wasn't liberating, it was certainly uplifting. Now, contrast this experience with the many testimonies that folks um, shared under a hashtag that exploded last week, things only Christian women here. A friend of mine from college, Holly, um, shared some of her experiences as a woman in the evangelical church world. Christian men aren't into you because you have a career. That's intimidating. Or, uh, the first time you came to our small group, I thought, oh, she's going to be trouble for the guys. Or, uh, men need to feel like they're in charge. If you let them do that and stroke their egos just a little bit, then they'll like you. Which I feel like is true for anyone, not just men. Um, but anyway, these are just a few of the countless examples of spiritual, physical, and intellectual policing that Holly and many other women in Christian circles have been restricted by in their faith communities. Of course, you don't have to look very far to see this kind of po uh, where this policing or originates from. Scripture has been wielded mercilessly to uphold misogynistic double standards without any concern for the souls that have been injured and the violence, whether physical or spiritual, that have been inflicted on women and men as a result. But here's the thing that I think is a little bit strange. Scripture is actually full of strong, creative, and compassionate women who have been anything but meek and mild. From Yael to Deborah, Tamar to Esther, Mary to Priscilla, there are plenty of examples of women who have been faithful and fearless. But there is only one woman in all of Scripture to write of herself. Her thoughts and her behaviors are printed as her own, not filtered through a male pen. And with the exception of Ruth and Tamar, she's the only woman who took full control of her ownership and ownership of her body, not for the sake of bearing an heir like Ruth and Tamar, but actually for the simple delight of loving, enjoying, and owning her body. That woman in so many ways is, I think, kind of like the dancers at the Lusty Lady. And so I like to call her the Lusty Lady Love Songwriter. Others might know her as the author of Song of Songs. The lusty lady love songwriter loves and owns her body and beauty in a way that few women do even in this day and age. She speaks unapologetically about her desires and she gives no explanations to justify her sexual urges. And as it, at least as it sounds in our passage for today, it seems that not only she feels her urges, but she acts on them too. 
The punishment for her boldness, um, for her lack of shame about herself and her body, according to her testimony, is that she is um, forced to work in the family vineyards by her brothers. And she labors under the sun and her skin turns dark. And for women of her time, and maybe even this time, that might have taught her a lesson, rendering her feeling unashamed and unattractive. But for our lusty lady love song writer, she rejoices even more boldly, declaring, I didn't think there could be any improvements, but here I am, dark and lovely. She can't be shut up, and she won't be shut down. And one might wonder, why aren't there more lusty lady love song writers in Scripture? Why does only her voice get heard? Well, I think the answer is the same then as it is now. It costs a lot. If you haven't been following the United Methodist Church News, the denomination that this um, congregation is affiliated with, you might not know that the high court of the church has deemed that the consecration, which is a fancy word for declaration, of Karen Olavito, an openly gay married clergywoman, her consecration as a bishop last year has been deemed unconstitutional. Now, it doesn't mean she doesn't get to be a bishop anymore, but it does mean that her official leadership credentials are vulnerable at the moment. And the council also expanded the definitions that have left, some definitions that have left all LGBTQ UMC clergy in a pretty vulnerable position. It costs a lot to own your body and to love your body without apology or qualification. And it costs even more to own your sexuality. And so one wonders, can the lusty lady love song writer who not only doesn't Uh, who, who not only doesn't, but also has the audacity to not even try to fit the mold of what is good and right and proper for her people. Can there be a place for her full self in the community that she's a part of? Can she be a person of honesty, freedom, and faithfulness without apology? And if she doesn't fit the traditional or normed model of female sexuality, does that mean she's a lost cause? Does it mean that she may as well just walk away from her faith, given up to and given up on? Here in Scripture, we actually have our answer. No. The very fact that Song of Songs was included in the Bible means that she and people like her belong. But just because those wise rabbis who compiled the Scripture included her, it doesn't necessarily mean that folks know what to do with her, Right? The church has struggled for a very long time with the issue of sexuality, mostly choosing to go with the, uh, if we don't talk about it, it will go away uh, approach, which I think many of us can agree has not worked out very well for anyone. Um, if there is no sex before marriage, and if marriage is defined as being between a man and a woman only, well, it's just too bad, so sad for everyone else, huh? Wrong. But since this has basically been the approach for the last oh, forever of Christianity, um, guidance on how to live your fullest self with faithfulness to God can be challenging. And this is especially true, of course, as we know here, um, for our LGBTQ, same-gender-loving folks. What does it mean to have, what does a Christian sexual ethic look like for those who identify in this way? Do you just transfer over heteronormative values, those, those norming values of a heterosexual framework? Is that what you do? Well, um, as a cisgendered, straight, married person, I am probably the least qualified person to answer this question. And so I invited um, Tim Wolf, uh, our former student pastor and soon-to-be MDiv holder, 
um, to share his experiences, insights, and reflections as someone who has spent much of his life trying to navigate some of these very questions. And so um, as Tim makes his way up here, um, I'll give one disclaimer. Tim's journey is his. We recognize that the experience of of a cisgendered gay gay male, um, white male, will not necessarily transfer one-to-one to to everyone's situation. However, um, after the conversation that we've had, um, I think the insights that he has gleaned in his own journey to find a way to be honestly and faithfully LGBTQ, I think, will offer a great deal of guidance um, for folks across the spectrum of sexual identity, including straight folks. And so I asked um, Tim to prepare for a few questions that I would ask him, um, knowing that he, in a lot of ways, he and um, his uh, long-term partner, Walt, have um, had to carve out, had to pioneer um, that kind of um, their life together in a way that is authentic to them. Um, And so first, um, Tim, if you would, let me just make sure you're good. Um, If you would share a little bit about yourself, as well as some of the particularly particularities that you see at play are at play in the LGBTQ culture that diverge from a heterosexual framework. Well, thanks, Emily, for for asking me to do this. Excuse me. Uh, By the way, before I start, I want to say two quick things. Walt sends his regards. He is uh, at an LGBTQ public health forum this weekend. And so he couldn't make it. And I said, if you could come, would you make it? And he said, I'm not really so sure. <laughs> but, he, but he sends his best. And I also want to make one general observation before we start talking, because we are, in a, we are in a big room with a big lot of people. As Emily has mentioned, there are a lot of different perspectives here. Uh, one thing, I w- I'm, I'm going to make a lot of general observations that are based out of my experience. I would hope that they are contested in a lot of different ways. At the same time, I'm also not so naive to think that a lot of what I'm going to be talking about that goes on in the LGBTQ sphere does not go on in the straight sphere. Because y'all do some strange stuff, too. Okay? All right? And so as you think about this and as we talk together, I would like us to really think about both how we can deepen our understanding of that particular space so we are much more empathetic with what's going on, but also that a lot of this has a lot of kind of broader implications. So now to answer your question. So Walt and I have been together for 26 years, which, as we joke in straight life, is like 150, okay? <laughs> and we met in 1991 before, sec- before being queer was cool. This is before Will and Grace, and before Ellen, and before RuPaul, and before all of that. Okay, and we grew up in a time when our institutions, which this is changing, not nearly quickly enough, but our institutions socialized Walt and me to be straight, heterosexual, marriageable men. From the day I popped out and the doctor said it was a boy, I was on the marriage track, the straight marriage track. And that's the way that went. And so consequently, that meant that our institutions really didn't know what to do with us And the church in particular really didn't want anything to do with us. Now, one thing, if you don't know any, if you've never met a gay person before, this is the first thing you need to know about queer people. We are resourceful, if anything. We are resourceful. And so what queer folks did was very interesting. We made our own church. We made our own church. And you know where we made it? We made it in the places that would have us. And it wasn't the conventional Christian church. It was community. And we built community in bars and nightclubs and bookstores and coffee shops in these commercial establishments. But then we did something else. And this something else is something that we are really working with right now. We flipped the heteronormative model on its head. 
Now, what do I mean by that? This is the way the straight story goes. Boy meets girl, they become friends, they fall in love, they create a union, and they have sex. In the queer world, it's the exact opposite. Okay, I'm just telling you, because in our world, in our church, what happens is you meet somebody, it looks like a possibility, run home and have sex with them, then maybe you can fall in love, and if the love lasts, maybe you can become friends for life. And that really hasn't changed. And part of the reason why we followed that model was because we didn't have one. We were just figuring everything out. So that's exactly how Walt and I did it. We were a last, we were a last call hookup. Walt says that we are the longest one-night stand in history. <laughs> and we did it with no support from our families. We had no support from our churches. In fact, they did everything they could to tear us apart. They essentially, like in today's text, put us in the vineyard. They said, that's where you need to be. Don't think you can come up in here and be who you are. And so we had to figure it out on our own. And with the help of a few friends that stayed in our corner, we began to start to work toward an understanding of what our relationship could be like. And we made a lot of mistakes. We learned a lot of lessons, but we made it. And a big part, and this is what I really want you all to carry away, the big part of why we made it was because we knew a lot of folks were looking at us. And a lot of folks wanted to see us fail. And if you know Walt and me, the best way to get anything out of us is to tell us we can't do it. They wanted us to fail, and a lot of people wanted us to succeed. And so for, ah, you know, 26 years and counting, we've been doing okay with it. And that's kind of the background of where we are. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so then, I, and I, I would say, in our conversation, there were a lot of things that, um, in the, this that you shared with me that, um, that were just new to me. I mean, because it just wasn't the world that I was in. So I would guess that... Um, Somewhere along the way, everyone is learning something in this conversation. Um, so then, uh, so you kind of talked broadly about s- sort of the realities um, that you have faced and that you've observed in um, the LGBTQ world um, generally. Um, so then what do you think um, LGBTQ Christians are up against when it comes to the t- task of developing a kind of specifically Christian sexual ethic? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there is no, nothing as known as a homonormative model, Right. We got lots of the heteronormative model for relationships, but there is no hormone-normative model. And the, although you know, the monogamous model is certainly gaining ground now that, that same-sex marriage is legal, now that churches and institutions are more accepting, but there are also, and this is really important, because of how our community came together, there are also what I would call other geometries that exist, relational kinds of geometries that don't mimic a heteronormative model at all. So you are in a community that is very okay with a lot of different kind of sexual configurations because there were never any limits for us, right? So I know folks who are in open relationships. One of our favorite couples is a three, is a triangle, but yet they're really sweet people that they've been together for years. I know, I know queer couples that are also running, or queer people that are running three and four mutual relationships at the same time because they get something over here and something over here and everybody knows about it. So right away, the first thing, when we start thinking about a queer sexual ethic is we've got to release ourselves from the idea that it has to compare to the traditional heteronormative model because those things won't always match up. And it's also something to keep to bear in mind is that queer folks 
never really take their foot out of the queer church of the bars and nightclubs. Because that's where the heart of our social and political life works. But I want to tell you something about these places that's very important. While they were very constructive in building our community, they also do not make money on happily partnered people. This is something you really want to realize. What happens on Halsted and Andersonville relies on people who are unhappy, who are insecure, who are lonely, who are looking for the next best thing. And they feed into that because unlike a lot of straight bars I've been, which are kind of very polite in what they see, queer bars, we're just very open about a lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of imagery that's in those bars. And they're highly sexualized, it's highly idealized, and there are people in those bars that fit those ideals. I know some guys who will not call their mamas, but they won't miss the gym because they're going out on Friday night. And so these, this imagery, this highly sexualized, idealized imagery is coming at you all the time, which creates a very interesting sensation of, I could always do better. There's always somebody better than who I've got. And consequently, it creates this idea that our bodies are in some way or another disposable. Because I could always do better, but somebody, whoever I'm with, could always do better. Everything is always in flux. And this really contradicts the Christian idea of what a body is all about. And if we're going to com combine our Christian witness with a sexual ethic, we have to oppose, the first thing we have to oppose is the idea that bodies are disposable. That what the body you have on Thursday, you can get another one on Friday and another one on Saturday. There's always more. We've got to get out of that idea. And despite all contrary opinions, we have to realize that LGBTQ and Christian most assuredly go together. If we believe that, even you straight folks in the audience, if you believe that, then you have to strengthen us in understanding that Christ, the Christian witness encompasses all that we do, including the way we approach our sexuality. So then, um, as you have wrestled with uh, the question of how to be honest and realistic about your context, because there are a lot of things that are vying um, or uh, uh, vying for your attention or sometimes uh, trying to take hold of, of your imagination, um, how then, uh, how do you be honest and realistic about um, your, your context as well as your faithful commitment as a Christian, right? Um, as you have kind of wrestled with that, what have you kind of gathered or landed on or what's emerged for you in the way of um, a sexual ethic? Well, the first, the starting point really is, it's, a, it's about the body. And so there, the sacredness of the body is so essential. And this is not just true for LGBTQ people. It's true for all of us, you know. But it's a very hard idea for queer people, especially whenever you move in a world that says your body is disposable. How is my body sacred? But the second piece is for those of us that grew up in homophobic faith traditions, it's even worse. And I'll tell you why. Because it makes us think that we are physically unfit. This homophobia, and the, here's what happens in, in a lot of homophobic traditions. They bypass the sacredness 
of the body to valorize straight marriage as the sacred institution. Are you tracking that? And here's what's very interesting. And so consequently, if I'm a straight, if I'm a gay person, as I was for many years, sitting in this kind of environment, all I'm hearing is I am never going to be good enough because I can't do what you're telling me I have to do. And I got so far as to get, I got myself a girlfriend and we talked about marriage and there was a moment when I just broke down and cried before her and said, I'm going to ruin your life. And now it became a problem of real Christian ethics. Okay, instead of doing what the church said was the Christian thing to do, I was tasked with finding out what the real Christian thing was to do. And I'm, ha I'm happy to say that we are still good friends. I've watched her children grow up. She's had a great family. I'm in a great relationship. And both of us agree that if we had gone this way, it would have been a disaster. But the church says, this is the sacred thing, this marriage. Your body is a problem now. And that becomes a real problem for LGBTQ Christians. But nowhere in Scripture do we ever hear marriage referred to as a sacred institution. We don't hear that. That's an, a human invention. We do hear over and over that our bodies are, are holy and that they're sacred. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God tells Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. I put you into your mother's womb. Last week we heard Paul say, your body is the temple that houses the very spirit of the living God. And so when queer folks get away from this condemnation about their bodies, and folks, it's about your body, because the problem happens in your body, okay? When we get away from that condemnation of the body and reclaim the sacredness in our own bodies, guess what? That enables us to see the sacredness in our partner's bodies. And that changes a whole lot. So an LGBTQ sexual ethic that witnesses Christian faith has to above all else, embrace the sacredness of the body. Am I making sense? So the sacredness of the body is the first mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of pole or, or stake um, right. of, uh, of a, sexual, a faithfully LGBTQ sexual ethic. Um, what would be the second um, marker of that for you? Well, then once we realize that our bodies are sacred, then the nature of the relationship changes, right? Because disposable bodies have what I would call transactional sex, okay? We're both in it. We, we both know what we're talking about. You know what? This is what we each want. Let's make this happen. See you later. Here's my number. I know you're never going to call, all right? It's very transactional. And in the queer community in particular, it's really transactional, it's physical pleasure for the moment, but sacred bodies, because we are seeing the sacredness in one another and the fact that we are both God-created and, as I said, God lives in us, sex becomes a different idea because it has to be mutual. Mutuality is, for me, the second leg of this whole thing. It's got to be mutual. And that, first of all, it automatically implies consent, right? That's, otherwise, it's not mutual. So that means if we get off somewhere and, and I find out that you're off into some crazy stuff that I'm not ready for, I'm not going to consent to it and mutuality is lost. We'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. But on the other side of this mutuality is also this really important understanding that the Bible very seldom 
connects love and sex. Today we have it. But there's a whole lot of sex that happens in the Bible that's got nothing to do with love. Okay? But never does the Bible talk about love and not talk about mutuality. And so what we need to realize is that it's fundamental to our faith. It always connects love and mutuality. Do unto others, right? As you would have them do unto you, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And do what? Love the other as yourself. Mutuality is the core of the Christian ethic. And it's essential to our, our Christian witness. And that, is, that applies to sex as much as anything. So very early in our relationship, we were really blessed because we met two friends, a straight couple, who had us over to their house and was like, well, that's kind of interesting. We're going to their house, and we didn't realize we were going to get a good talking to. They were close friends of Walt, and they were on our side, and they had never really said it. It was, just came out of nowhere. Y'all come over for dinner on a Saturday night. So we did, and we had dinner, and we all laughed and joked, and out of nowhere, it was our friends John and Sylvia. Sylvia just got up and went to the cabinet, and she picked up a bowl. I'm going to use this for just a second. She just picked up a bowl, put it on the counter, and she said, this is your relationship. You're here, Walt, Tim, you're here. This is your relationship. And every day of your lives, you have to take care of this. This is what you share, and this is what you're building together. So you can't let a day go by that you each put something into this bowl. An act of kindness, a generous gift. Maybe, in, and I'm, with this, I'll give you examples we use. Sometimes what goes in the bowl for me is, honey, don't worry, I'll make the bed today. Just go, go have your coffee. Sometimes it's like, guess what? We're going to Rome for your graduation. <laughs> right? Sometimes it is you're cranky, and instead of hitting you with all those things I wanted to talk about today, I'm just going to chill. It can all wait till tomorrow. But put something in the bowl every day, they say. That's good for everybody. There's no rainbow flag on this advice, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's how we have lived our lives every day. And I'll tell you a quick story. I know I'm talking longer than I planned, but I'm feeling <laughs> the room a little bit. <laughs> so we had one of those fights, you know, those fights where it just is like, now it's not even about what started the fight. It's about <laughs> winning the fight. And so now it's like, well, you always do this. Well, you always do this. Well, what about that time when, and you know, you're just like your mother, and off we go, right? Now, <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah. So we're in one of those fights, and at a certain point, I know they always say, don't ever go to bed mad. But sometimes it's best to go to bed mad. It's best just to say, if I don't, the only way I can stop this is to put myself in bed and shut the door. Because if I stay up, somebody's going to get killed around here. There's going to be something, something terrible that's going to happen, right? So I said, I'm, that's it, I'm going to bed. And I went to bed, and I had all of those thoughts that you would have at that point. I think we'd been together like 10, 12 years. It had been a while, and I'm thinking, God, I've spent, now I've lost all my prime time. <laughs> this is over. I'm now in my 40s. Ain't nobody going to want to talk to me, you know. I'm going to be that old man pottering around in his tiny little apartment with five cats and, you know, books everywhere. This is my life is over. And I went to sleep. After I'd, I'd gone and things had kind of calmed down, it occurred to Walt, he hadn't done anything all day for the bowl. That may have been what the fight was about, I don't know. But 
he hadn't done anything for the bowl. And he just got on the elevator, went down to the little store in our building. And when I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, I don't even want to wake up tomorrow because I don't know what this is going to be, I looked on the bed table, and there was a baby Ruth bar there. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know what? We may not even like each other, but this relationship is going to last. You see? That's mutuality. And it's so important. And so, you know, when, when that defines our sexual ethic, everything, everything in the relationship aligns to mutual concern. Not just our sex lives, but the way we are kind to one another, what we want for one another. Everything is aligned toward mutuality. And so sacredness and mutuality go together. And that's what makes sex and, every, and breakfast, <laughs> you know, and driving in the car and folding the laundry. That's what makes it all sacred. And so transactional sex, I want to just back this up, solely for pleasure, just isn't good enough. It's just not good enough for us when we know that our bodies are sacred and we're built for mutual. It's just not good enough. It can be fun, but it's not good enough. And so whatever geometries our, our, our relationships take, I think we need to make sure that mutually passionate sex expresses both the sacredness of our bodies, the God I see in you, the God you see in me, and the fact that we are mutually engaged and committed to this. And then there's this kind of third piece that, um, that ties it all together, I think, mm-hmm. um, that you mentioned. Uh, so why don't you unpack that a little bit? Ah. So I've mentioned geometries, and has anybody be a flinch? It's like, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? So I think that, you know, we're conditioned to think of anything outside of a monogamous prototype as infidelity, right, as unfaithfulness. <clears throat> and fun- but fidelity means faithfulness, and in the sexual context, faithfulness always sort of gets wrapped up in monogamy. And queer folks that are in monogamous relationships, that are in relationships that have been de- defined as monogamous, they're bound, just like straight folks, to honor those things. Just because there are other kinds of relationships in our community is not a license. I'm talking right to my LGBTQ folks right now. Just because we live in a community that has a whole lot of sexual diversity is not a license to ill. It's just that simple. When we are in monogamous relationships and we break the trust in that relationship, we dishonor two bodies because we reject their sacredness, right? We shatter the mutuality. We actually bring deceit into a relationship that should be built on honesty. And the faith between the two people is destroyed. If I'm saying that, I'm also saying that not everybody's built for monogamous relationships. And so now this creates a question of, is there more to this idea of faithfulness than just not sleeping around on the partner? And I'm going to suggest that there is. Because in the Bible, faithfulness means passionate loyalty. It is an absolute eagerness to sacrifice for the sake of things that matter the most. The faithfulness of the early church was unto death. The faithfulness of God in Jesus was unto death. And that's the idea of faithfulness. So passionate loyalty right away for all of us requires a reality check in terms of relationships. All right? And this is really what I want to stress. If this person that you're with isn't what you're looking for, then you need to call it a day. And if you're not who they're looking for, it's time to say sayonara, see you, no harm done. 
Because when we get in relationships and think we can change somebody, now I'm sounding like Oprah for a minute, right? <laughs> but <laughs> when we get into relationships and think we can change somebody into what we want them to be, we can never be passionately loyal to them because we are not admitting the whole person into the relationship. He's got a fine job. He's got, you know, really good family, but I don't like his friends. So we're just going to have to get rid of those friends. Mm -hmm. Guess what? You will never be passionately loyal to that person because you will never have all of that person. And so passionate loyalty pushes you to love the whole and the imperfect person, to value their strengths and their weaknesses. And Walt and I live by this proverb that we found a long time ago that says the best way to keep one's sheep is to give them enough pasture. And you know what that means? And this is free for all y'all. This is free compost counseling right here, okay? The best way to keep and hold on to your sheep is to give them enough pasture. And that means I have to make room for the worst that is in Walt. Walt's got to make room for the worst that is in me so that the best of both of us can come together. I think that um, this uh, can be, this uh, to some extent, um, this requires a little more conversation, yes. but um, but I, I think about the difference between faithfulness in um, in a in a in a non marriage non covenanted relationship mm -hmm. versus one in one where you have made a covenant and made specific promises to be with one another. That part of that promise that you make is to work it out. So yeah. you may have gone into the marriage thinking, hoping you mm -hmm. know one maybe he or she will will shift in one way or the other, but um, maybe when it gets revealed that that's not going to happen, your commitment to one another still calls you to mm -hmm. a deeper kind of um, uh, connection and, and commitment to working, working through that, uh, maybe that hope that you had that now has to die or change into yeah. something else. Um, so I kind of want to make that distinction for some mm -hmm. folks who might be sort of, yeah. you know, yeah. get feeling a little muddled around that. Yeah, good. It is, when you're building the relationship, there is a commitment in it. This is not like, okay, it's not like, it's not a job interview, right? But all I'm just saying is along the way, there are certain, I have counseled more straight and gay folks who have come to me and said, if I just, you know what, this, 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 I love all of that, but there's this, 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 this. And it's like, is that really going to be worth, is it, is it possible, is it doable? Will that person be changed because they want to be changed? Or will they, because see what happens a lot of times is we are not, our loyalty gets tested on both sides, right? So it's like, I, this, is, this is what, you know, you want me to be this way? I'll be this way when I'm with you. So loyalty really does demand a, a, that acceptance and that willingness to work through things. You're exactly right, Emily, to work things out but also to know that you have to be committed to that person at their best, yeah, easy, at their worst. Um, so I asked him, I thought, you know, as he and I were having deeper conversation, I said, you know, I think there are going to be some folks who yeah. want to go deeper into conversation um, with Tim around this. So if you, um, he has uh, generously offered himself uh, to be around um, for maybe some post-worship conversation if people have kind of wanting to dig deeper um, or have more specific questions. Um, 
So kind of stick around after worship if you, if you want, if you want to um, have more conversation. Um, but I'm just so grateful for you to kind of share the wisdom that you have gleaned um, as you have tried, wrestled to make sense of, of, of all of who you are as a, as a Christian, as a, um, as a gay man in a committed relationship, um, and trying to do that hard self-work. Um, so thank you. Thank you, thank you for doing that work, and thank you for sharing some of what you have learned from that um, work with this community. So, um, Thank you. And just yeah. one last word. It's really about the witness. It really is. People are watching you, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got to work these things out with the understanding that you call yourself a Christian. And so what happens in your relationships matters to your witness. And that's that. Yeah, that watching is happening in a lot of different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, the people who don't want you to work out, yeah. the people who are for you. And I would say add this third piece of like other people who are Christians who don't know how to do it, right? And they're hoping to glean some, some insights uh, by watching the way that you um, try to navigate that. But I think, I think these three things that you identified, the honoring the body, um, my body, your body, the body of my partner, um, uh, that mutuality piece um, and the sort of faithfulness, loyal, passionate loyalty piece, um, those are not specific to an LGBTQ context, right? These are, these are like human relationship values um, that we should all probably to some extent begin to mine for our own lives. And so um, whether you are uh, sexually active or reluctantly celibate, um, I want you to kind of understand these three practices um, of sacredness of the body, mutuality, and faithfulness as practices of the spirit, as habits of the heart. Um, They're ways of seeing and being in relationship with yourself, with God, with others. And while we cannot necessarily undo the distortion that um, some folks among us have experienced in our identity formation, we can certainly see these these ways as, as sort of avenues for beginning anew in our lives. Um, The way that you have been um, does not have to define the way that you will be. You can make a choice today to say, I'm going to see my body and the the bodies of the people around me as sacred. I'm going to practice mutuality and not as um, probably uh, what is more seen in places of commerce, those churches of commerce, um, uh, not transactional, right? My relationships are not transactional. I'm going to choose to have them be mutual. And then finally, this piece about faithfulness and passionate loyalty. Like, I'm going to try in my relationship um, rather than just coexist together, right? But that there has to be some passionate quality to my faithfulness to my partner. And, and it doesn't, it's not magic, right? These are things that we make a choice to do um, and, and live out in the best ways that we can. So, you know, take, take these um, principles as, uh, as maybe seeds for something gr- growing new in you. And, and remember that this is wrestling with this and choosing not to just kind of give into um, the norms that, that maybe don't, aren't right for you um, is right in line with scripture, right? Our lusty lady love songwriter showed us that this is, this is possible. And so we can stand in her bright and bold poetry, right? Knowing that the most powerful way to witness to the gospel uh, might just be to actually claim our fullest selves without shame, and rooted in the knowledge that we are God's beloved, dark and lovely, unashamed and unafraid. Let us pray. God, I give you thanks um, for the ways that you have been at work in Tim, both uh, in his own 
uh, sense of call and, and tenacious uh, commitment to the work of your gospel, the transformative work in your gospel um, in his life and feeling convinced that it is not just for him, but for so many others. And I thank you that that, that passion for you and knowing you has um, shown itself in his relationship with Walt. I pray that you would continue to bless them and hold them together and love them and pour out your spirit and grace in their lives, um, not just for them, but so that they can be vessels of that grace and that love um, and that hope in um, the relationships all around them. Help them to bear witness, not only um, with their mouths and their words, but with their very bodies and their life together. And we pray for all, I pray for each person in this room as we continue to make our way forward in the muddy waters of this world and faith that you might grant us each the kind of wisdom and insight that we need to faithfully follow the lives that you have created and called us to live. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.